Ephesians 4, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 16. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through, you, and through all, and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, so we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But, speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a privilege to gather this evening as a local body, as your church. Is it, a privilege, is it, it is a privilege to know that all that we have in Christ is ours by grace alone. It is nothing that we have earned, nothing that we have done, nothing that we could have done. It's by the grace of God alone. It is your grace that has saved us, and it is your grace that sustains us. It is your mercy that is new every morning. And Father, we rejoice in your grace. We rejoice in your mercy that has saved us, that has sustained us, that has called us, that will complete in us what you have begun. This evening, as we look at this passage, we pray that you would challenge each and every one of us, that you would mold us into your image, that your spirit would work through your word for your glory. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When Chris and I first moved to Altoona, um, almost six years ago, we were looking for a house. And it was going to be our first time ever purchasing a house. I remember we, we, we took our time, thanks, um, thankful for, for the Wilsons who provided a house for us to stay in while we took our time to get acclimated to the area and look around and find a place to live. And we looked at, at several houses, but the problem was that I didn't know what I was looking for. 
I, I am not good with my hands. I've never been good in construction or, or anything along the I am not a handyman. And I didn't even know what to look for. I didn't know where to begin. Thankfully, my wife's father is a handyman. I had someone who knew what he was looking for, who knew what to do, who could look at a house and tell me, that is a solid house. That is a good house. This, morning as we continue, this evening, as we continue our series through the church, we're going to look at the, thrive, the church thriving. What is a good church? What is a thriving church? What is a church that is accomplishing what it is supposed to be accomplishing? What does a thriving church look like? What does it look like? If you were to ask that question, you'd probably get several different answers. Some people would, would look at a, a charismatic pastor, someone who's just outgoing, who can draw people to himself. Some would say, well, a, a thriving church is a church that is growing. Some would say it's a, it's a church that is exciting. But these all fall short of what a thriving church is. In fact, as we look at Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 16 this evening, Paul tells us what a thriving church is. So as we continue our series through the church, we've worked our way through. So far, we looked at the church promised, the church established, the church's sure foundation, the makeup of the church, the purpose of the church, the offices of the church, the ordinances of the church. And this evening... The church thriving. What does a thriving church look like? As we work our way through this passage, we'll see that a thriving church is unified. A thriving church is equipped. And a thriving church is growing. It is growing. The first thing we see is a thriving church is unified. Paul starts out here in chapter 4. I, therefore... Every time we see that word, we look to see what is the therefore, therefore. But there is a, a larger shift in the book of Ephesians here. So when you come to Ephesians chapter 4, it's not just therefore, the, the last paragraph. Rather, it's therefore, the last three chapters. Ephesians here shifts from the, the, the solid doctrine, the truth that Paul has laid out in chapters 1 to 3, through then, then to application, starting here in chapter 4. What does that doctrine then lead to? What does it look like in, a, in practical life, in a church, in a marriage, in, in, in a family? So that therefore looks back to the first three full chapters of Ephesians. Based on this truth that I have given you, this doctrine that I have laid down before you, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, it's a statement that is true here, both physically and spiritually. Paul is in jail as he writes this. He is literally a prisoner for the Lord. He is literally in a jail cell because 
of his testimony, because of his ministry. At the same time, he's a prisoner of the Lord, and the fact that he is a slave of Christ, he is Christ's. He is not his own. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. That word walk is used often by Paul to uh, mean mean conduct or your life, your day-to-day life. So I beseech you to live or to act in such a way that is worthy of the calling with which you were called. Or to live in accordance with who you are in Christ. I, a prisoner of the Lord, I who understands who I am in Christ, encourage you to understand who you are in Christ. And then to live in that reality. To take all of this doctrine that I have laid down in the first three chapters and to apply it to your lives. To live in that. Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. What does that look like? Paul moves forward into verse 2 and he explains what this looks like. What does it look like to walk worthy of the calling with which I have been called? It looks like walking with all lowliness and gentleness. With humility and meekness. Humility. This is the right response of one who has a proper view of himself and God in light of the gospel. In fact, if you look back, Paul's prayer at the end of chapter 3, I, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father, verse 14, of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The man who comprehends that The man who knows that cannot help but be humble. Lowliness and gentleness is the right response to the gospel. It's a recognition that I am truly unworthy. God is great. He is glorious. His love for me is beyond comprehension. It looks like not just recognizing that once, but living in that reality. Living in that understanding of who I am, of who God is, and what God has given me in Christ. That leads me to a life that is lowly, that is gentle. Not only that, but with long-suffering. Walking worthy of the calling with which I've been called looks like walking with humility, walking with meekness, but also walking with long-suffering. Literally, the idea of 
suffering long. Patience in the face of hardship. In fact, he doesn't go on there. He goes, he, he goes even further. Bearing with one another. If you didn't know any better. You would think that Paul here in Ephesians 4 in these first few verses is talking about suffering. You would think he is saying as you, as you go through this difficult thing. But he's not. He's just talking about normal life for the Christian. He's talking about relationships in the church. I think that helps us to see that, that this thing that we are called to, a thriving church that is unified, this unity in the church is not easy. It is something that we must strive after. Paul is using very harsh words here. Long-suffering, bearing with one another. It sounds like he's describing something very difficult and unpleasant. Because he's talking about relationships, and relationships are difficult. Because relationships involve people, and people are difficult. I've often had uh, former pastors, I won't tell you who, tell me, ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. <laughs> people are difficult. Not you guys, other people. This takes a, a, a purpose deep within us. I am going to do this. This is who I am in Christ, and therefore this is what I am going to pursue. I'm going to be humble. I'm going to be meek. I'm going to suffer long, and I'm going to bear with my brothers and sisters in Christ. But notice those last two words. Because this is the motivation behind all of this. In love. Notice it doesn't say bearing with one another because that is your duty. It's bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. Because God loved me, I love him. Because he has loved me, I must love others. We can all grit our teeth and get through a Thanksgiving meal with someone we don't like. We can all keep the peace for a minute because that is our duty. It takes a lot more to choose to love takes a lot more to say, you know what, I'm going to bear with this one, not because I have to, because I'm going to choose to, because I am going to love them. Paul goes on, endeavoring or trying hard, striving after, striving to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This unity in the church is brought by the Spirit. It comes from him. In fact, we'll see that in just a, a second in verse 4. We must then endeavor to keep this unity that has been given to us by the Spirit. The Spirit has given us unity. 
And to keep that unity, we must strive after humility and meekness and long-suffering, and we must bear with one another in love and the bond of peace. Why? Because, because there is one body and one spirit. Because we have all been baptized into the same body in Christ, in the Spirit, and we are all filled with that same Spirit. There is one body, and there is one Spirit. If you are in Christ, you are in that body, and you have that Spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling. We all have the same calling from verse 1. Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. The calling to salvation. The calling to, to, to come to Christ, to be redeemed. We have that same calling and we have the same hope that comes with that calling. There was not anyone here in Christ who got in Christ any other way. There is one way. And it is in Christ alone. And there is one hope in Christ alone. It's the hope of eternity. The hope of glorification. It is what God is doing in us through Christ. We're all part of one body. We all have one spirit. We all have the same hope. We've all been saved the same way. We all have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That is the, the, the doctrine that we cling to, that we believe, that we hold to. In fact, it goes for one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is the God of Jew and Greek, the God of male and female, the God of young and old. We must be unified. Because we're in the same body, because we have the same spirit, because that spirit gives us unity and calls us to live in that unity. We must be unified and we must be committed to unity. And the question for us this evening in these first five verses is, are you committed to unity? Are you committed to unity? Unity is not always agreeing on everything. You can disagree and you can be unified. Unity is not, not speaking up when you should speak up. You can speak up when you should speak up and still be unified. You must strive after unity because we are unified in what truly matters. We are all in Christ. We all have the hope of glory. We all serve the same God. We have the same doctrine. We are filled with the same spirit and we've been called to the same walk. 
Let us do it together. We live in a time that seems extremely disunified, ununified, not unified. Both politically and in, in any other way you could think of. We live in a time where there's, there's different opinions on masks or not masks. We came out of a presidential election where there's different opinions on, on what's going on. You can disagree on those things and still cling to your unity in Christ. Strive for unity. Be committed to unity. A thriving church is a church that is unified, and it's not unified by accident. It's unified because it fights to be unified. Secondly, a thriving church is a church that is equipped. It's interesting, Paul kind of shifts gears now as he comes to verse 7, but, but, he's, he's shifting gears from st stressing unity to now stressing uniqueness. We have the same standing before God, we have the same goal, but we have different purposes, different gifts to accomplish that goal. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Who was given grace? Each one of us. If you are in Christ, you were given grace. And notice that it is grace that you were given. What God has given you in Christ is unmerited. It's not something that you could earn. It was given to you according to the measure of Christ's gift. What Christ has called you to, Christ has equipped you for. If you are in Christ, you've been given grace, which is a gift that God has given to you, that Christ has given to you, for his purposes in his church, to each one, everyone. No one has no gift. Therefore, he says, quoting Psalm here, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Did you look at these three statements? He, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, he gave gifts to men. When he ascended on high, that is when he was victorious, when he was risen from the dead, when he had conquered death and hell. When Christ rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, he gave us victory. Not only did he give us victory, he gave us freedom. When he ascended on high, when he gave us victory, he gave us freedom. He led captivity captive. If captivity, if captivity is captive, then freedom has come. Those who were captive to sin and death are now with Paul captive to Christ. Or as Paul puts it in Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. He has given us victory. He has given us freedom. And he has given us gifts. And he gave gifts to men. And he's given all this to us by grace alone. Verse 9 goes on. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he 
first descended into the lower parts of the earth. That's the incarnation. Christ coming to earth, taking on flesh, as we see in Ephesians 2. He who descended in the incarnation is also the one who ascended at his ascension far above the heavens that he might fill all things. That we can flip over to Ephesians 2. Or Philippians 2. Verses 9 to 11, which explains this. Therefore God also, after he, after he, he uh, starting in verse 8 actually, and therefore being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. So after he came, after he um, descended, his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He descended in the incarnation. He ascended after his resurrection far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles. He himself. It is Christ himself who has given these gifts to his church. He gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. just some of the gifts that Christ, that the ascended Christ has given to his church. And there's a purpose for this gift, why he has given these men. Verse 12 goes on to explain that. For the purpose, why do you give these gifts? For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Christ gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers in order to equip his church for the work of the ministry. That sums up the role of what a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. How? Well, it goes on for the edifying of the body of Christ. Looks to 2 Timothy 3 16 to 17. This is accomplished primarily through the word of God. That's why we see in Acts 2, as the church is, found, is founded, what do they do? They sit under the teaching. In Acts 6, why do we need deacons? So that pastors can give themselves to what they have been called to, to the preaching of the word of God, to prayer, why? So that they can equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Understand what is being implied here. The role of a pastor is not to do all the ministry in the church. The role of a pastor is to preach the word of God to equip you 
with me to go out and to accomplish the work of the ministry. We all do it. Every one of us has a role. That's what Paul is getting at in this entire section. You have all been given a gift. Use it for the glory of God. What's the goal? Verse 13. The goal is unity. The goal is maturity. The goal is growth. So we all come to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect or mature man. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we all come to the unity of the faith. So we're striving after unity, yet also maturity. The knowledge of the Son of God. How do we grow in our knowledge? Through the Word of God. As Second Peter 1 tells us. To a mature man. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Our goal is unity, maturity, and growth. We must strive after unity. But at the same time, the church must recognize that we are fully equipped for success. God in Christ has given us all that we need. He has given us victory. He has given us freedom. He has given us gifts. Some of which are apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, which have all had different roles throughout the period of the church. For what purpose? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ? And what is the goal that we are striving after? Unity, maturity, and growth. And there's an end date on this, when Christ comes. We're striving after the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, which we will never get to in this life. That doesn't mean we shouldn't strive after it. Finally, A thriving church is unified. A thriving church recognizes that they have been equipped. And a thriving church is growing. But it's not growing as you may think. A thriving church is not necessarily growing in size, but they are growing in godliness. Look at verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning of craftiness of deceitful plotting. A thriving church is a church that is established in the truth. It's a church that knows the truth, that clings to the truth, that proclaims the truth. It is not a church that is easily led astray. It is not a church that is tossed to and fro. To and fro. By every little change, by every little challenge. It's a church that's established in the truth because they know the truth because their pastor has equipped them for the work of the ministry through the word of God. They're established in the truth. But, verse 15, speaking the truth in love. They're not easily led astray. They know the truth of the word of God. They stand firm in the truth of the word of God. But what do they do? 
They aren't easily led astray, but instead, what do they do? They speak the truth in love. It's the second time that we've seen those two words, in love. In fact, we'll see them again, the very last two words in this passage, in love. The thriving church bears with one another in love. The thriving church speaks the truth in love. It's the truth of the gospel. They know the truth, they're established in it, but they don't keep it to themselves. They speak it. They speak it to each other. They speak it to the world, as Pastor Johnston showed us this morning. It's the truth of the gospel. And it must be spoken in love. That we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Christ who is the leader of the church, the foundation of the church. We speak the truth in love to each other and to the world for the purpose that we may grow up in him. Not that we may fill our building. Hopefully, that is an outcome. Hopefully, as we speak the truth in love to each other, and then we speak the truth in love to the world, hopefully people turn to Christ. And hopefully our church grows, and we can reach Altoona, and we can plant other churches that will grow. But our goal is not to fill this building. Our goal is to speak the truth in love that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and knit together, by what every joint supplies, every part is important, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Every part is important, every part is working. Notice the logic of Paul's argument here. We all must strive after unity. Why? Because we've all been given a gift. Why? Because all those gifts must work together for the church to thrive. If we're not unified, it doesn't matter what gifts we have. Those gifts are never going to work together. If we didn't have gifts, it wouldn't matter if we were unified because the gifts couldn't accomplish anything. We couldn't do anything with no gifts. God has given us gifts. He's called us to a purpose. He's called us to unity. He's given us all that we need. We are fully equipped. Therefore, we must all serve for the glory of God. And as this whole body is joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, it causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. In effect, a thriving church is a church that is growing in Christ. Because it realizes that has been equipped, that everyone has a gift, everyone has a job, everyone has a responsibility. And because that church fights to be unified, because it realizes that what the church is called to do is greater than our petty differences. So we can set this aside for the glory of God and the purpose of the church. Godly biblical church growth results from every member of the body fully using their spiritual gift in submission to the Spirit and in cooperation with other believers. 
That's how John MacArthur kind of summarized verse 16 there. A godly biblical church growth results from every member of the body fully using their spiritual gift in submission to the Spirit and in cooperation with the believers. Pastor Johnston used a, it's not really a stat, it's more of a saying that people say this morning. In most churches, it seems that 10% of the people do 90% of the work. I pray that that is never this church. Because a church where that is the case is not a church that is thriving. A church that is thriving is a church where every member recognizes their gift. Every member uses that gift. Every member strives for unity. So an application, what it comes down to is this. We need you. Your church needs you. Each and every one of you have been given a gift. Each and every one of you have been brought to this church specifically for a purpose. God has you here. Find your gift and use it. You don't have to do everything, but you need to do your part. Pastor Johnson used that same statement this morning referring to evangelism, to reaching our Jerusalem, to reaching Altoona and surrounding areas. You don't have to reach the whole thing. Just do your part. The same thing is true in the church. No one should have to do everything because everybody should be doing their part. You don't have to be asked to do something. Find something to do. If you don't know what to do, ask. I would love to give you a job. I would love to give you some responsibility. I would love to tell you what to do. <laughs> a thriving church is a church that is unified. A thriving church is a church that recognizes that they are fully equipped for what God has called them to. And a thriving church is a church that is growing because all the members are using the gifts that God has given them. I pray that we are a thriving church. I don't, it's not for me to say we are a thriving church or we are not a thriving church. It's for each one of you to search your heart. It's for each one of you to be honest with yourself and be honest before God and saying, am I doing my part to make sure that Altoona Regular Baptist Church is a thriving church? Am I doing my part? Am I using my gift? Don't worry about that person across the aisle. Look in your heart. What has God called you to do? How has he equipped you? There are many of you that do many things. I am thankful for each and every one of you. But maybe there's some that, maybe God has challenged you. Maybe, maybe he's opened your eyes to the reality that I, I need to find something to do. I need to do my part. I, 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 not just I need to, I want to. I want to be a part of this church. I want to see this church thrive. Because as this church thrives, and as we all grow together, we will grow in reaching our community as well. We can't reach our community if we're not thriving among ourselves, if we are divided. 
thriving church fights for unity, a thriving church recognizes that they are equipped, and a thriving church is growing because every member is serving. We're going to